Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. I'm your host for today, Father Wesley Walker. Unfortunately, Father Creighton uh, couldn't join us today, but we are joined by Father Greg Peters. He's the vicar of Church of the Epiphany in La Mirada, California. He has a PhD in Christian history from St. Michael's College, Toronto, and is currently working on an SMD in monastic studies. Um, you'll have to tell me how to say the name of the university. <laughs> Ateneo di Sant'Antonio. That one, in Rome. <laughs> He's the professor of medieval and spiritual theology at the Tory Honors College at Biola University and the Servants of Christ Research Professor at Neshota House Theological Seminary. He's written a number of books probably and articles, probably books that listeners of this show are familiar with, The Monkhood of All Believers, Becoming a Community of Disciples, and the Story of Monasticism. Um, perhaps more important, than any of these excellent academic and literary achievements, however, is the fact that he is a native of Lynchburg, Virginia, which is a fantastic city. Yes, yes, very proud of that. <laughs> well, Father Greg, thanks for joining us today. We're, we're excited to have you. You're one of those people who I feel like we probably should have already had on three or four times before today. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm glad to, glad to be here now. Better late than never. Exactly. So the reason we wanted to have you on uh, this time is an upcoming conference at Neshota House uh, Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. So could you tell the listeners about the Breck Conference just in general? I mean, what is it? How did it come about? What, what, yeah. it, what exactly does it entail? Love to. So there was a um, now closed, unfortunately, uh, Anglican religious community in the Phoenix area, and it's closed because of lack of vocations. And so the last abbot, and perhaps, I, mean, I think it was the founder as well of that community, was a son of the house. And so as the, you know, they realized they were going to have to close things up, and they've, uh, the last two monks have since passed, uh, they gave a gift uh, to Neshota House uh, for the purpose of endowing um, a chair, and, uh, but creating a conference. Um, and so, um, you know, Dr. Anderson, uh, dean of the house, uh, at least the time he was interim dean, he they sat in faculty meetings and said, well, that's, who's going to call Greg Peters? Uh, you know, talking about monasticism in an Anglican context, you know, let's call Greg. So, so he asked me if I'd like to uh, come on board as a research professor, but also start this conference. And I said, uh, under one condition that the conference be about recovering the monastic tradition for the sake of the church, the contemporary church. So I didn't want to talk about 13th century French refectory paintings, even though that would be really interesting. <laughs> and so he said, uh, yeah, that sounds great. That's exactly what we want. So I came on board in uh, 2018 and spent a year developing uh, the conference. We named it after one of the founders of Neshota House, James Lloyd Breck, uh, because he had written uh, a letter to his brother after volunteering to come to the Wisconsin Territory where he said, we're going to go out and found a religious house. And so he very much understood Neshota House to be kind of a monastic and its inspiration and origins. And so we named it after him. And um we had our first one in 2019, uh, which went uh, swimmingly, and then 2020 got canceled. Uh, and then so we've um, come back again. But it's a, it's a day and a half um, with an optional another day and a half of pre-conference if you want to come and just learn more uh, from me. But then the conference itself is like a Thursday uh, afternoon and evening and into all day Friday. And we invite people to come to recover something from the monastic tradition, but to speak to the contemporary church. So we wanted to have very... Uh, contemporary application, um, if possible. And then we build in lots of time for people to enjoy Neshota House, of course, but also to just talk with one another, like, what are your thoughts about putting this into the parish, or what would this look like in your parish? So. Very cool. Very cool. Every year has been a very interesting topic 
uh, when you all have held it. But this year's topic, I think, is especially interesting um, because it's on E.B. Pusey and monasticism. Um, and I think of I think most of our listeners will be familiar with Pusey, but it, it might help kind of in general just to take a step back and maybe talk a little bit about who he was, what, why he's important just as a figure in Anglicanism. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, again, I mean, a lot of people probably know him, but uh, what most of us know in general about him is, of course, he was one of the founding members of the Oxford movement, you know, in as much as we could talk about founding members, <laughs> wasn't necessarily a planned uh, thing to happen. But um, and that's uh, and that's because he had been a fellow at Oriel College with Keeble, uh, with John Henry Newman, with Harrell Froude, um, the, the first four, kind of the core of the Oxford movement. Uh, he himself was of those four. Froude died young. Um, Keeble and, and Pusey, of course, remained Anglicans, but but Keeble left Oxford uh, for parish ministry. Um, and even when he became the Oxford professor of poetry, that was non-residential. And so um, Pusey was the one who stayed in Oxford. He was um, Regis Professor of Hebrew um, and a canon of Christ Church, where he lived and was buried uh, his entire life. Um, and um, you know, I think one of the main things that makes him interesting in the context of the Brett Conference is his deep involvement with the uh, initial uh, origins of reintroduction of monasticism into the Anglican Church. So, like, for example, and we'll talk more about this, but, you know, uh, when Marion Hughes, who was the first woman to take monastic vows uh, since the dissolution in 1842, she uh, knew Pusey through a common priest friend. Um, and so he was the one who actually heard her make those vows on Trinity Sunday, 1842. Um, so when she vowed poverty, chastity, and obedience, that was that was to God, but in the presence of Pusey. And then she went over to uh, St. Mary the Virgin Church to uh, receive communion from Newman, who was aware uh, of what had just happened. Um, so, And that was the fruit of a lot of work that Pusey had been doing uh, on behalf of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was yeah clearly very important. So who's going to be speaking at the um, at the conference on on this topic? Yeah, so when I was thinking about uh, picking, you know, because I pick, I mean, with some in some consultation with people, I pick I pick the topics, and we had done uh, you know some patristic things, and uh, so I thought it'd be more to, to to pick something that's in Anglicanism, but like to recover that element of Anglicanism for the sake of the contemporary church, even though it's not that long ago. Um, and so I had settled, you know, in general on the Oxford movement and I settled on Pusey. Um, and as I started thinking about who could come do those talks, I happened to be reading uh, Toby Karlowitz's, Father Toby Karlowitz's, The Sacramental Vision of, you know, Edward Bouvier Pusey. Uh, excellent book from uh, TNT Clark in, in 2021. Um, and of course, Father Toby has taught at uh, Neshota House, Church History and Liturgics. His PhD is from St. Andrews. This was actually his St. Andrews dissertation that's been revised. Um, and he's even right now working on what he calls like a reader-friendly introduction to Pusey's theology and spirituality, which is great. We don't have enough reader-friendly <laughs> kinds of things dedicated to Pusey. And and, the, and even though the Sacramental Vision book might not be reader-friendly in the sense of, you know, everyone, it is an accessible book. And so I was reading uh, that book and realized that, like, like, yeah, Father Toby really understands Pusey's reliance on the patristics. And that would include monastic authors from the patristics that were greatly influential on Pusey. And not just in Pusey's Sacramental Vision, but in other ways that I'm convinced are there uh, mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so Father Toby is going to be one of our speakers. Um, I should also say he's currently an assisting priest uh, out in Peoria, Illinois, the Diocese of Quincy. 
Um, and then the other person I've invited and who's accepted is Dr. Saren Head James. Uh, he's a tutor in ecclesiastical history at St. Stephen's House in Oxford. Uh, his degrees are from Durham and Oxford. Uh, and he's the author of The Cowley Fathers, uh, which is a history of the Anglican Society of St. John the Evangelist. I mean, really the, the definitive history. Uh, the Cowley Fathers have ceased to exist uh, in England, unfortunately, but the American branch uh, is still open. Uh, but uh, Dr. James wrote that definitive history uh, back in, published in 2019 with Canterbury Press. Um, and so he, he knows the, you know, the Anglican, he's not the only one, but he knows the Anglican monastic context really well and uh, has done a deep dive, obviously, in the Cowley Fathers. And so I thought he would be a really great uh, person to invite to come and, and uh, kind of do the more uh, contemporary, like, so, so Father Toby's going to do Pusey kind of on the patristics and how that might have been influenced by the monastic authors. And then Dr. James is going to look at uh, Pusey's um, active ministry of going to France to study religious communities. Wow. Yeah, that'll be, that will be quite a conference. I, it sounds like awesome. For those who, who don't know the history of Anglicanism, you know, I mean, obviously under Henry VIII, we had the the monasteries dissolved, so there really wasn't very much monastic activity. Like you said, Mary Hughes, the first woman to take vows. So beyond just being present for that, what what role did Pusey play in the restoration of monastic life in England? Yeah, so we do have um, you know we do have examples from the dissolution uh, and before eighteen forty two of where like Anna Colette at the mm -hmm. Little Gideon community. Uh, at least we have a document where she talks like her vow of virginity. Mm -hmm. um, but Marion Hughes took like, what are the traditional vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience? So not, not, they're not the Benedictine vows, for example, but they are the kind of traditional religious life vows. Um, so the role that, so it was, but you know, but this flowering that came as a result of the Oxford movement in the 19th century and so much of, with Pusey. I mean, first Pusey was just a fan of monasticism. And not like, I mean, you know, for those who might be watching this as a video, you know, this office that you can see in the background is full of like monastic trinkets and memorabilia that are gifts from students. Cause you know, when you work on that for a living, they have a fun time giving you, you know, monastic things. And so, but you know, so he wasn't like just interested in like monastic memorabilia, like I am in some degree, but like he was a real fan of its reintroduction. Uh, and so like a couple of quotes that I think really illustrate this. He wrote once, uh, the church has, in her monastic institutions, a refuge from the weariness and vanities of the world and a means of higher perfectioned individuals, which many sigh after and which might be revived in a primitive form, but which as yet we have not. Uh, a little prescient there, as of yet, we have not. <laughs> and then another place he wrote, the monastic system is favorable to higher devotion, but it is through the virtues exercised in it. Sacramental grace is common to all, more is given as there is greater longing, greater denial of self, greater use of what is given. So the two things we can see there, and the one, he's thinking in both cases that monastic institutions lead to greater devotion. But the one, you know, he's saying like, hey, sacramental grace is common to all, but there is this other thing, this, I don't know, higher thing, maybe we would uh, say it or something like that. I mean, he does use like those who have a greater longing, a greater denial. Um, and so he's, first of all, he's just a big fan of monasticism and its reintroduction, but then he actively worked to reintroduce it, right? So that's kind of what we see with even Marion Hughes is that uh, he promoted its reintroduction on the ground, feet on the ground. For example, he toured France, uh, examining the rules of Roman Catholic uh, women's communities over there. 
And he was doing that not, again, just to be archaic, but because he wanted to learn from them so he could come back and advise uh, what was actually happening in England. Um, you know, what would be the best forms of religious life that women could take? Um, and so that, in part, led him to hear the vows of, of Marion Hughes. Um, but I think a, a, a greater flourishing of his kind of boots on the ground perspective is in 1844, there was a committee that was working to set up a women's community in London. And so they were looking for a woman who could lead that uh, endeavor. And it was going to be called the Village Park Sisterhood. It, it was called the Village Park Sisterhood when it was founded. Pusey couldn't recommend anyone. He just was unaware uh, of any women uh, who could lead it because he didn't know of anyone who had been formed yet mm -hmm. properly in the monastic life to come and lead that endeavor. But instead, he ended up um, arranging for a woman named uh, Jane Ellicombe, uh, who was the daughter of a friend of his, to found a community. Um, and so he ensured that she was formed for the monastic life so that in March of 1845, um, Jane, alongside some other women, and they were soon joined by like five additional women, eventually founding the Sisterhood of the Holy Cross, um, would be a viable community. So in the one hand, Pusey's like, well, I don't know of anyone. But on the other hand, he's like, but we could form someone to help found it. Um, and so again, he he's very much just actively doing it. So he's a fan of the reintroduction of monasticism, and then he was a boots on the ground person to actually make it happen. Mm, very cool. You've obviously done a lot of work in monasticism and, 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 and not just the history of it, but potential applications to the church today. And, and that is one of the cool features of the conference that it's not just about the kind of excavation of, of Pusey and his, his work on this topic, but, but what, how we in the church might appropriate some of what he did there in our own context. So I'm just curious. And we had, we had a listener, Jeff, who's a member of our communion of Patreon saints who, uh, who submitted a question where he was, he was kind of wondering in general, but, but we might tie it a little specifically to, to Pusey. What can be gained by a recovery of monasticism by Anglicans? Yeah, yeah. Pusey alludes to it uh, in that one quotation. Uh, Newman was even clearer, the Anglican Newman, <laughs> was even clearer in a couple of letters. Where I mean, Newman goes right, gets right to the heart of the issue. He says, men and women are going to leave Anglicanism if we do not provide them with a monastic system. Because he knew, so we might think of it like this, you know, it might be tempting to think, oh, people want something more. They want something deeper, right? Uh, and so they they go looking for it, right? And this might be, you know, in parish ministry, you might have a parishioner come and say, oh, Father, I'm going to go on a retreat because I really just need to get away, right, to kind of experience God. And, um, you know, what you really wish they would ask for would be more Eucharist, but, you know, instead they go on a retreat or something like that. So so Newman was a was aware that that, that was going to happen. But I would I take that a step further and say probably what Newman was really aware of and thinking about was God is going to call Anglican men and women to the monastic life. And they need somewhere to go and work that out. And if there's that vocation, that divine vocation, if there's nowhere to go and work that out, they're going to leave. They're going to convert to Roman Catholicism, you know, which I know he did eventually himself. But, um, but he, again, and that's what kind of, Pusey is getting at too, that there are people that want something greater, right? So they're not, this isn't an argument for the superiority of the monastic life. It, it is, it is a much more pastoral argument that says, you know, uh, priests, rectors, vicars, curates are going to have men and women called to the religious life. And where are they going to be able to go? 
if we don't have monastic life, right? So that was a great part of the, the argument. And I think that still holds true today, right? I mean, yeah, is it few and far between? Maybe, but that's God's business, not ours, right? This isn't, this isn't a promotion we're running, you know, join the religious life and, you know, gain some favor with God, you know, but like, you know, this is a, we're going to have people who feel called to the religious life and we need to be able to have places that they can go and be, be formed and live out that life. Right. Um, and so I think that's why, you know, that's the difference that the monastic life needs. That's, that's what it does. It's, you know, it's, it's like to me, and maybe this is because I'm, I am the choir that I preach to all the time. It's just like, you know, you, you would never say like, you know what, maybe, maybe we shouldn't, put so much stock into this thing called marriage, you know, I mean, like whatever, you know, I mean, it's just, it's unnecessary because everyone who feels called to marriage is going to say, wait a second, why aren't we performing marriages anymore? You know, well, think about if you're, you know, a person who feels called to religious life, uh, in 18, you know, 40, well, maybe we should say even like 1820 by 1840, there was enough movement that those people probably knew they were going to have a place to go, but you know, 1820, you know, immediately there's, there's no place that's going to meet that, you know, this is a calling of God on your life. What are you going to do? Well, I guess I'll have to convert and go over to France probably <laughs> uh, and live out my religious life. So, so I think we need to keep bearing that in mind, even in the contemporary church is to say, you know what, we're not making an argument for the superiority of the, of the monastic life over any other form of life, but we are saying God calls people to it and we want to be able to respond to that. Mm. We have to respond to it. Right, right. Well, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm curious. Um, so, I listeners know I'm outside of Baltimore, sort of in between Baltimore and DC, and I know of one community. I've led a retreat there, um, kind of outside of Baltimore, uh, in a in a town called Catonsville, where they it was an Episcopal uh, convent, and then in the '90s they ended up switching, uh, converting to Catholicism because mm -hmm. there simply wasn't the institutional support um, for them in the Episcopal Church anymore. And uh, and really, they I think they were dying out too. Um, so where where in the Anglican world is this happening now? I mean, if listeners want to check out Anglican monasticism, I mean, what what are some places they can look? Oh, great question. So I mean, one of the uh, a, a good community that has a long history here in the United States, though they're they're quite small now, is the community of Saint Mary. Uh, just up near Albany, New York. It's a great place for where a woman who might feel called to the monastic life could go, an Anglican religious community um, there. Unfortunately, men's religious life, monastic life in the United States is, is seems to be dying out um, in the Anglican context. Um, you know, there's St. Gregory's in Three Rivers, Michigan, historically Episcopalian, and the Cowley Fathers are still here in the U.S., um, but there are uh, other communities in England, and in fact, um, just last week, um, a new website uh, was launched, anglicanreligiouslifeproject.org.uk, uh, so anglicanreligiouslifeproject.org.uk uh, uh, was launched, and the whole purpose um, of that is to be a place where um, People can come. I mean, it sounds like that would be crass, you know, like one stop shopping for the religious life, right? <laughs> and, and not because then you can like follow links to the community. So that might be true of the website, but it's a, it's a way of saying like, here's what the religious life is. Here's kind of how it functions in, um, in the church in relationship to the church. Um, and then it probably will direct you out to, 
um, to things. I mean, for years and years, every year, there's a religious life handbook that's been published by like Canterbury Press. I think now that's mostly an online uh, access too. Um, but that's where you, I mean, if, if you would go or you could be like, you know, I get a lot of emails because people find me <laughs> or are recommended to me. Um, but, but yeah, there's, there's a movement now within Anglicanism to try to, to try to bring religious life to the fore again, um, in a way that's, uh, you know, even the, even the evangelical George, you know, Archbishop George Carey argued for monastic life. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, Ron Williams has says positive things his whole career about that. And then of course, uh, Archbishop Welby started, uh, the St. Anselm community out of Lambeth, which is a non-traditional monastic community, but a, but a championing of, uh, the monastic and religious life. So, yeah. So there's good places to like places are, there's a place, there's a website you can go to. I mean, but there's also real monks and nuns that you can meet too. And, you know, they're often obviously the best, uh, at explaining, the religious life because they live it <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> i'm uh i'm curious how you might respond to an objection i i, I heard this from a roman catholic recently i think uh, it was maybe when i posted that we were going to have you on and and their objection was something along the lines basically that the reason one of the main reasons that anglicanism has had a tough time maintaining a monastic life uh is because of the daily the 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 kind of thesis behind the daily office and that in monasticizing the country, they created kind of a, a lack of, or they, they removed the need for, for actual monasteries. I don't think that's true, but mm. when I say it, nobody cares. So why is that not true? <laughs> well, maybe they still won't care, but I think the reason that it is, it is very clear. The, the book of common prayer is monastic in its origin. And yes, I mean, Cranmer was like, Hey, you know who can't pray seven times a day as a farmer, uh, but you know who could pray se uh, two times a day as a farmer, uh, you know, or something like that. So um, it is clear that the Book of Common Prayer, I think that's been established beyond doubt now. But I don't think that would account for, um, so like leaving the actual, you know, historical reasons for the dissolution aside. I mean, you, James Clark just published kind of now the definitive book on that. Um, on the dissolution with Yale University Press, but leaving that aside, you know all the reasons that are easy Twitter fodder for you know claiming about Henry VIII. But the point is, is like, um, I I think what the you know monasticizing the country, if you will, didn't didn't make it so that people wouldn't have to go to a monastery. It it because it that's not you don't go to a monastery just to pray. You go to a monastery, but again, I'm returning back now to the vocation language because God calls you to it. Now, sometimes people hear their calling because others help them hear the calling. And if you don't think monasticism is a call, then you're not going to ever be able to sit with someone and say, oh, it could be that that's a monastic call, right? Now, not every single celibate life is monastic, right? It, that's different. But, um, but I actually think what Anglicanism did was, yes, it, it brought monastic spirituality out of the monasteries and put it into the general populace. But inadvertently, you know, it was just the proverbial monastic baby was thrown out with the bathwater. You know, it was it was it was a loss that was recognized very early on. And uh, I, I wrote a book called Reforming the Monastery, which has a chapter on Anglican 
the Anglicanism. And the, the point is, is like there's a history between the dissolution and the 19th, mid 19th century of lots of people saying, hey, this is like we got rid of a really useful institution. We never should have done that. And and not just useful as in like, you know, like when Burke, when Evan Burke makes the argument, you know, <laughs> to the French, like, why are you closing the monasteries? They're the best at taking care of poor people in rural villages. You know, that's not the argument they're making. Oh no, who's going to care for social, you know, who's going to do social works in these rural villages? Though that's a good question to ask as well. But this was like, oh no, we've gotten rid of something that some people still seem to be called to. What do we do? Mm-hmm. Um, and well, what, what, what people did oftentimes was either they, they didn't follow through with that call um, or they converted um, and went and lived up that call elsewhere. Um, so I think that's important to realize is that, you know, um, something was lost that then put it out of the mental landscape of, of priests and directors and spiritual companions to say, oh, maybe this is a monastic call because it it, it, it was lost in the imagination, if you will, uh, in the Anglican context writ large. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so part of what had to be done in the 19th century was, you know, like, not normalizing, but showing that this was not like a Roman Catholic, you know, return and, and invention, but this was always in the warp and woof of what it meant to be the Christian church. Uh, and then to have people like, you know, Marion Hughes say, I'm called to this, <laughs> you know, uh, and other women and men step forward and say, I'm called to this. Yeah. Yeah. It is very different. I guess I, I, I did a funeral recently with a, uh, with a redemptorist priest and he brought down his redemptorist brothers to help with the, but they all live, you know, in community, but their communities attached to a parish. And I've always thought that was kind of cool how, you yeah. know, parishioners in the in the church see that community life. And, you know, not all of those parishioners will be called to to monastic life, but it does. It does show them just naturally that this is an option for you, you know, and um, if you don't if you don't ever have that, it it is kind of it would be sort of out of left field, I guess, for people. Well, and I remember when I was talking to a, a, the former superior of a Roman Catholic women's community, uh, and when she was the superior, the abbess, there were like 1,100 nuns in the community. So I was talking to her and I said, there's no way you knew all of those nuns. And she acknowledged that she could pass probably a sister on the street and wouldn't have known that she was one of her sisters. But she said, but I knew in general where everyone was at. And she goes, we never had all of them living at the house, right? Because they were scattered out doing different kinds of work. And of course, one of the main works and whole whole religious order sprung up to do this was to become religious educators at parish level but then talking to her like why were so many women joining you know the religious life at that time and she said well because it used to be that there was not you didn't grow up roman catholic without seeing monks and nuns on a regular basis you know being involved in your parish the director of religious ed was almost always a religious sister Mm-hmm. Right. We, we many parochial schools were run by religious. And so she said we saw it was an option. People talked about it as an option. And so I think that you, know, you kind of work that backwards and you say, well, if there's no place to send someone, <laughs> then it, it's out of mind. You're not going to be talking to someone. You're going to, oh, what, you know, Father, I might be called to the religious life. Like, well, that's impossible. We don't have monasteries. How could God call you to that? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> you know. So, yep. Great, great example of that uh, in film. I think is the uh, the movie Doubt. You know, you got Meryl Streep, oh, a yeah. nun who runs the parochial school. You know? 
Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I always I sympathize with her character because she's big into um fountain pens. You know, her criticism of the young priest is he uses a, a ballpoint pen. Yeah, there you <laughs> I want to return to tradition. That's right. There you go. There you go. Led by the sisters. That's right. Yeah. Well, and then you always have the stereotypical, you know, the the mean, the mean teacher nun who, you know, wraps your fingers with the ruler. I mean, it, it's a trope because it was true. You know, there was a truthfulness to at least the ubiquity of these men and women in the lives of of young people. That is, I mean, it's lost in the Roman Catholic Church now too, but obviously clearly lost in Roman Catholic. I mean, in Anglicanism with the dissolution for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'd be interested since um, since we're talking about Pusey and and all this uh, to to step back a little and talk about his spirituality in general. And I, I think you've already kind of hinted at at some interesting features of his spirituality. Um, we did an episode in the past on the love of God and of Jesus for souls and the blessedness of intercession for them which is a fantastic book. I mean, it's a mm. short read, but the sermons or the, the talks he gives at, at the retreat are, are quite amazing, I think. Um, one of the interesting things I've always liked about Pusey is that he is an interesting blend of things. I mean, on the one hand, he is certainly influenced by the Anglican tradition, um, particularly as he comes to understand it as a, as a member of the Oxford movement, heavy emphasis on scripture, heavy emphasis on patristic mm-hmm. uh, tradition. On the other hand, though, he is influenced quite a bit by by Roman Catholic devotions. I mean, you, it comes through in his in his mm-hmm. talks um, quite a bit and going to France and studying how they were doing women's religious life and all that. And I think there's also a bit of his spirituality, which may have come from his kind of overbearing father um, and how that had an effect on him long term. But I, I'm just interested if you could talk a little bit about all these factors kind of at work in him and may, maybe how it comes to bear on his on his attempt to revive monasticism a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll try to speak to that. Yeah, I mean, Pusey is a fascinating individual because uh, he, you know, he had such a deep piety in the best sense of the word, um, you know, though ostensibly he spent his life in what should have been a pretty heady environment. Um, you know, as a university professor for over 50 years, uh, but yet had this deep, deep piety. I think a lot of it goes back to like things you just noticed. He was a, he was a student of the fathers. And so he, he learned from the fathers that theology is never separated. I mean, theology is life. That's not abstract, (laughs) you know, theologizing. I mean, yes, it can be, but those become separated. I think more like with scholasticism in the 13th century, and so certainly he's reading that, like, uh, you know, the fathers are just influential in informing him that, when, oh, when you do theology, the life of prayer is essential to it, you know, and not, not to, you know, the overused quotation from Evagrius Pontus, you know, theologian is one who prays and one who prays is a theologian. But my guess is, is Pusey really believed that. Um, second of all, again, like because of his Oxford, you know, movement leanings, that's you know, his sacramental life, his sacramentology, he, you know, he, they were essential for him. Uh, as means of grace. And, you know, even in the quotation I read earlier, you know, he sees like, well, sacramental grace is there for everyone, but there is perhaps something more and something bigger. And I think that's the part I want to kind of latch on to about Pusey's spirituality is like, I think Pusey just had a sense that you're never quite there. Uh, right. I mean, you know, there's, there's something more, you should always be, uh, you know, disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. And there should be a little something more. I mean, it's right in those quotations I read, a means of a higher perfection. You know, the monastic system is able to higher devotion. Now, we that language could be wrought with problematic elements to it. You know, like back in the early church, there was the, you know, the 
the arguments, even by Clement of Alexandria, the 30, 1600 fold return, you know, like, like married people, uh, sorry, you know, you're, you're going to get a 30 fold return because you're mucking about with sex and money, you know, but like, but if you get widowed and you don't remarry, you know, your, your return goes up to 60, but it's the, it's the monks and the nuns, the virgins that are going to get the hundredfold. And that's just the way it is. I'm not making an argument. That's what Pusey thought at all. Um, but I think there is a sense of where he understands this ongoing pursuit, you know, needs to be pursued. I also think a big influence on him is Harel Frude. Now, Harel Frude doesn't get talked about a lot anymore because he died young. Um, but, uh, you know, even though Pusey married in his late 20s, um, he had been friends with Frude for a while uh, at that point. Um, you know, Frude had gone up to Oriel in 1821, so he's there at the same time as Pusey. Um, Frude was tutored by Keeble, um, but, you know, this is, a, this is obviously a friend group that are cross-pollinating one another. Um, when Frude, Frude always had really strong views about the ascetic life, and, uh, you know, when he died young, uh, I guess he was like consumptive, they call it, you know, and so uh, he died young, and then uh, Keeble and Newman published his remains, Right. So that's the genre of like what's laying on the desk and in the closets and let's publish it all. So they did. And uh, things, his anti, very anti Reformation views came out. But also what came out is his deep, extreme uh, practices of self denial and asceticism, including like sleeping on the floor, um, very sparse diet. I mean, this was scandalous. The remains were quite scandalous to a lot of people. But, you know, you got to think like, and Pusey was friends with, you know, Newman, Keeble, Frude. Think about these men, right? Think about that influence you're going to have, the kind of uh, poetic piety, if you will, of a Keeble, right? Parish-based, uh, the kind of uh, heady piety of a Newman. Um, but then you've got, you know, you've got the friend that sleeps on the floor, right? Uh, as, as intentional self-denial, you know? Like, I think that's just all going to work together to be, to create a person like Pusey. And it could be that, you know, Frude's influence, you know, on Pusey could, you know, like Pusey's experience with his father could have been redeemed to some extent by Frude's vision of a self-denial, of a harsh, uh, harsh form of living on purpose. Um, so, yeah, I, I really think we need to, when we look at Pusey, we need to understand that, like, and, and this is uh, Father Karlowitz's book is, gets at this too, even though it's not ostensibly about, you know, his spirituality, but it's like that sacramental vision he had that almost everything is pointing to some greater reality, that everything is, you know, pointing to God and these lesser goods are always about the greatest good, that very Augustinian, you know, that deeply Augustinian sense. I think Pusey just lived that out. Mm -hmm. um, and so his spirituality takes not different forms, you know, like you can't put an adjective on the front of it. Like, oh, he had a Benedictine spirituality for a season and a Celtic spirituality, but he just, you know, in his whole person, over a long life, very consistently held together the heart, the mind, the body. But I think at the end of the day, you know, again, not just fruit being understudy, but it probably an understudied element of even Pusey's life is his ascetical life. Um, I think that's something that needs to be studied to really show that his spirituality was in large part very much an incarnated uh, lifestyle. So I know um, kind of over the history of of studying Pusey, there's been a number of shifts in terms of the kind of historiography mm -hmm. about him. And and so, I mean, for example, one iteration of that 
or one wave of that historiography, which was sort of anti Pusey would highlight kind of his severity. Um, he sort of ruined his wife who was this fun loving woman. Yeah. And then, you know, they married and she became very dour and um, his brother wouldn't, didn't want his children to live with them if, if anything happened to him. And uh, all these kind of things get kind of highlighted. You know, he, he prescribed hair shirts as pins. Yep. Yeah. And, and war know? and war, yeah. And war one. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so I'm just interested to know your assessment kind of on, on the modern state of scholarship. Obviously, at the beginning, there's competing hagiographies mm -hmm. and criticisms yeah. tied very closely to churchmanship debates, especially as ritualism and Anglo-Catholicism are emerging. Um, but it does seem like there's been a reevaluation. Uh, but mm -hmm. but at the same time, there's not a ton of literature out there. I mean, Father Toby's book is is new. But before that, I mean, I like Perry Butler's Pusey Rediscovered, I think, is is mm -hmm. from the 80s. Uh, so it's been a while, you know, since. So what, yeah. what are what are current themes, foci, emphases in contemporary studies on Pusey? Where could there be some more work done asking yeah. for a friend? Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> so there is a book on Pusey and his theology of the Eucharist. And unfortunately, it's escaping me, but it's in a, I feel like it's a Brill series. Uh, which might mean you need to, you know, sell a car to pay for it. But, um, you know, but uh, but it is in paperback and I'm sorry, I uh, it's sitting on my desk at home. But um, so there is that work being done. So, I mean, obviously, Father Toby with his with Pusey Sacramental Vision, his sacramentology, but that would also be the book on the on the Eucharist. It's, it's Brian Douglas's book, The Eucharistic Theology of great Pusey, thank you Pusey, yeah. thank you so much yeah thank you so much uh it's, it's on the read soon uh pile so um and again i think that uh there's that element of Pusey sacramental theology um father toby has you know in his book pointed out the need to really to dive deeper into Pusey's understanding of scriptural interpretation his infamous types and prophecies of the old testament I don't know if you know this, Father Wesley, but the story of this is George Westaver, the principal of Pusey House, wrote a thesis on it. The problem is there's never been an edition because I think, you know, Pusey's lid in those didn't think that book's not going to sell. No one's interested in that. Turns out, though, now no one can read Pusey's handwriting. So, uh, so it's become very problematic. I think Father George ostensibly has said more than once he's working on an edition. Let's hope that he's that's going to happen. Um, but I, have that would, I have a story about this, but I, I'll tell it to you after. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. I hope you know something. So, but I think if that, if that can happen, I mean, there's more and more interest in his understanding of scripture, um, you know, in the way in which he adopted figural reading. And of course that's big in Anglican uh, circles or several people who are doing some good work there. Um, and then I think also, an area that's starting to get some attention and again, probably through Toby's work is like his, uh, and this is what the Brett conference wants to do is look deeper at Pusey and his connections to the patristic church and not just who did he use, but, but even his own, um, how, how he used, uh, how he used them. Right. So, so studies of, um, not just where do we see his use of the fathers, but really try to get our head around how he's using them. And right. You know, that's always, you know, even when you quote uh, from a church father, you know, what you quote matters and what you don't quote in the surrounding context, you know, uh, reveals a lot too. So there, there's, you know, there is like the kind of historical, oh, he was such a, you know, kind of downer person. And, and by the way, I mean, I'm, I'm a little careful to, 
you know, I don't, I don't want to associate that with his asceticism, you know, right. like, yeah, somehow bodily asceticism just makes you a miserable person. But, um, but, but I mean, but yeah, okay. So that aside, um, but I think like, yeah, there is some, some work that is being done, some more that needs to be done. And I think those are, again, the sacramentology, scriptural interpretation. And then I think his use of the patristics are things that are uh, being worked on now. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, not many people sit down and read Lydon's four volume right. Life of Pusey, um, you know, which, which so much of that, as you probably know, is just like quotations from the things he said. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a rich study still. Uh, but yeah, it'd be great if we could, you know, I think Newman has by far taken the lion's share of all the, I mean, think about even Keeble, Frude, Pusey. I mean, none of them are really studied like they should be, um, given their significance, not just to the Oxford movement, but to, you know, revivalism and to, um, renewal of theology and sacraments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is one thing I guess we didn't talk about earlier was uh pusey's uh, you know as a biblical scholar is is kind of really pretty interesting and and very phenomenal guy i mean he did his study in germany that's right um, under higher right. critics so he he was well versed in what was going on and kind of at the cutting edge of his uh of his field on that um but then sort of rejected the that higher critical approach in adopting the figure it's very interesting i i in yeah. a way, he kind of foreshadows, I think, what some of the movements we see happening now with them taking back up a figure, figural reading, canonical approach, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, but also I think that's rooted. I mean, this is where like and it's probably rooted in the same for even like a Brever Childs or the more recent people. Um, I mean, if you're going to read Augustine. I mean, you're going to get figural reading uh, and I mean, including just in the confession, so not even in. You know, you don't have to go to the unchristian teaching. I mean, and and I mean, Pusey did a translation in addition of the confession. Yep. So, you know, he 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 knows what's there in books. You know, uh, eleven and twelve about you know the the multiple meanings of text from Genesis. Um, and I think like yeah, he you know, and again, even that like you know, it maybe someone's done this. Obviously, I'm not a Pusey expert, um, but like. Um, you know, but who's really looked at, you know, what did, what did Pusey read? I mean, I know, uh, to Father Toby gets a, a little bit of this, but like, you know, what, what did he read? What exactly is he rejecting? Cause you know, you say German higher criticism. It's like, well, right. what is that? You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot in a, in a lot of people. Yeah. I think that's a great thing, but a lot of it is going to depend on the ability to interact with the reliable edition of the types and prophecies of the old Testament. And so. Father George Westaver, if you're listening to this and you should be, please, please give us that gift. <laughs> Hopefully future guest of the show, Father George Westaver. Uh, no, uh, good, yeah, good. Father, Father Creighton uh, went to the conference over there uh, this past summer and and connected with him. And so we're hoping yeah. eventually to have him on. And oh, I will certainly uh, we'll certainly turn up the heat on that particular point. Yeah. We, we need it. We need it. Awesome. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, very good. Very good. Well, thank you for uh, for coming on, talking about Pusey, someone that we're we're very fond of here. Um, to kind of end our discussions, we we like to sort of lighten things up a little bit and talk about yeah. something that we're into, some sort of uh, book, movie, experience, activity, whatever. So, Father mm. Greg, what are you what are you into these days? Okay, well, you know, I've got a 21 year old and a nearly 18 year old, so they're always telling me about TV shows. So I'm gonna I'm gonna refrain from revealing my TV watching life based on my children's recommendations. But the thing that I've been for for the past few years. I've been reading fiction by early 20th century French Roman Catholic novelists like yes. George Fernandez, Francois yes. Marioc, 
And thanks to Clooney Media putting a lot of this back in print. Man, I have just been, you know, what am I into? I am nerding out on that stuff. Let me tell you that. I mean, mm. I, I have just been shouting it from the rooftops of how, um, and I don't mean, I mean, there's always usually a tragic priestly figure uh, in those novels. So, it's, I mean, that might have been why I read Diary of a Country Priest originally for, by Bernardo's. Um, but what I'm realizing is they are, their psychological insights rival Dostoevsky's, you know, when it comes to the Russian side of things. And so I, I'm, I'm not going to I mean, I'm reading everything I can get my hands on uh, by those two authors. And and even um, this probably won't surprise um, many people at all. But Hans uh, or von Balthasar, you know, sat down one day and wrote three, 350 pages of on Bernardos. And so I'm looking forward to reading his uh, his study of him. So. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. There's nothing better than the 20th century Catholic novel. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little slow to that, to that time period, to that place. But yeah. man, once I found it, I, I've been just like, yeah, been Indo, Graham Greene, Walker <laughs> Percy. I, it's just all, yeah, I, that's yeah. a, that's a rabbit hole. We could definitely go down for quite a while. <laughs> uh, so good. So good. So good. Um, for me, I, so, um, in, parish ministry I have, I have kind of an aging congregation uh, certainly we have a uh, an influx of of young people especially lately but um but we have a are the majority of our congregations a little older and so a lot of what i end up doing is uh pastoral visits which i love doing um in some ways they always make me a little nervous because you know you're going into a situation and you're not always sure what the other person is gonna say need you know and part of our job is to kind of diagnose what's going on under the surface anyways so there's always kind of this prayerful approach with with a little bit of anxiety or a little nervousness which i don't think is bad it just it just is the way it is and um, i mean fortunately we have a prayer book that walks us through some things to say but you know you, you still have to interact with people and so i got a book uh recently called pastoral visitation oh yeah uh, for the Care of Souls by Tyler C. Arnold, a Lexham Press book. I haven't gotten very far into it, but I have found it helpful um, just awesome. in terms of in terms of conceptualizing what the mission is, how to go about doing that, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I hope to kind of refine my approach to the pastoral visit and and hopefully perfect it. Um, put in my ten thousand hours. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome because that's that's a whole series they've got. Yes, right? yes. And such for the cure of souls or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. That uh, the stuff. editor is uh, Harold. I don't know how to say his last name. Sinkbell, Sinkbill, something like that. Um, but he's a Lutheran, but he, I always found him to be very thoughtful and um, nice. and very pastoral. And so, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to getting a little little further into that because I think mm. there will be a lot of a lot of fruit there. So. Excellent. Well, Dr. Peter or Father Peters, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, if people want to sign up for the Breck Conference, how can they do that? Uh, so you go to Nashota, uh, N-A-S-H-O-T-A-H dot E-D-U backslash Breck. Excellent. And you can follow the link for registration. And uh, what also uh, will be given away through an essay contest. It's not not a long essay, just a very brief thing. Uh, we will be giving away one uh, full scholarship. Um, for the BRAC to waive the uh, registration fees. Um, and so uh, that details are on there too, and there's a, a deadline. Um, but yeah, but that's how you can go register for it. Excellent, excellent. Well, hopefully listeners, you will take them up on that opportunity because it sounds awesome. And and Dr. Peters, if people want to follow, follow you, where can they do that? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I uh, my social media presence is very thin, um, but, um, but I mean, I. 
yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm old school. Feel <laughs> free to just email me and <laughs> happy to chat. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's the main, yeah, I don't, I don't really have a social media presence that's sure. worth following. So, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's probably a good sign these days anyways. So, yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a necessity, you know, but both because I'm a little bit archaic myself, but also just like, you know, the, the time and effort that it takes, um, is just not, yeah. I'd also have to be convinced that anyone wants to really hear my thoughts on much, much of anything. So. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> well, well, we are appreciative for your thoughts. So thank you for coming yeah, on appreciate and, it. And listeners, uh, you can you can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, all the social medias that Father Peters does not have. Um, and, oh, I uh, didn't say I didn't have them. I just said I'm not good at using there, them. There we go. There we go. There we go. Um, so, anyways, you can you can follow us there. Uh, please, we would appreciate it if you would you would rate, review, subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts or videos. And uh, of course, you're always welcome to join the uh, communion of Patreon saints for just five dollars a month. Uh, to close us out, I will pray a collect for uh, E.B. Pusey. So let us pray. Almighty God, you gave your servant, Edward Bouvier Pusey, special gifts of grace to understand and teach the truth revealed in Christ Jesus. Grant that by his teaching we may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>